Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't, today is episode 1884 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, October the 17th, 2016, and I am back from vacation. And if I sound like I'm kind of recharged, I am. I had a blast on vacation. We kind of made a game of it, like, where's Jack and Dorothy on Facebook? Some of you got pretty close in your guessing. I will tell you where we really were, and I will tell you why we didn't tell anybody where we were uh, this time around and why we may do that again in the future and why it worked out so well for us to do so. Uh, I'll also tell you about a lot of other great stuff today. It is a listener feedback show, so here's just some of the stuff I have on deck to talk about today. Um, how much money is being paid to teachers and how much money is being paid to them in retirement? The answer may shock you. I've got a new website where you can look all this information up. It is a paid service, but you can do a few for free, and that'll uh, give you some insight. A gentleman from Chicago sent me what some teachers are being paid in retirement a month. It will blow you away. Um, and it might start us asking more questions about how do we reform the education system without just saying we need to pay people more money. Because as you'll see, we're paying them plenty of money. A uh, new form series is out called uh, The Great Rewrite. It's on automation. There's about a three-minute intro. I'm going to play that for you today. I'm going to give you some thoughts on the whole thing. It's got ch five chapters, and I, I get the feeling it's not done yet. Uh, I just found it today. I kind of listened to the whole thing while I was getting the show ready, so I didn't give it my full attention. I'm going to go back and do so, but uh, pretty amazing the way some of these things are coming. I'm going to talk to you about teaching permaculture and conducting PDCs. I got a question from a listener that says, hey, if I want to actually be able to teach permaculture, what are the requirements? And it's not a simple question. It's really a simple answer, but it's a complicated answer because there's a there's a... There's a requirement as far as, you know, what do you have to do in order for the permaculture gods to bless you? And what do you have to do to be successful? I mean, that's the actual question, and uh, we'll talk about that. We have a parent who says, you know what, my kid had ADD in high school or school, and uh, I didn't do what they said, and here's what happened, and here's why I'm glad I didn't do what they said. I got that and more all coming up for you in just a bit. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have three from Alex Shrug today at tspwiki.com. 
The first one is the Fabian Society, Incremental Socialism. Uh, we have, number two, the Battle for the Bottom. That's about the U.S. presidential campaign at the time, and it sounds a lot like today. And then we have the Battle for North Vietnam. That's the one I'm going to read because I think it has the most teachable moment for why we study history and why we think about history as we decide what we're going to do today. Before I do that, though, in other news, we have a few bullet points from the year. Uh, Mark Twain publishes Huckleberry Finn. Critics will count it as his best work because he has taken time to do it right. It illustrates the uncomfortable degree of racism of yesteryear. It's worth reading. Cyril Charles Parsons invents the practical steam turbine engine this year. And the Washington Monument is completed in 1884. Let's take a look at the battle for North Vietnam. I have to mention this. Francis found the resources of North Vietnam irresistible, and they see a way to trade with the Chinese covertly by sending merchants up the Red River to avoid the normal Chinese customs agents. Unfortunately, the same river is crawling with pirates. To solve this and many other problems, troops have been sent and allocated by the French commandant for merchant escort duty and protection. That would make sense if that's what he used them for. Instead, he decides to invade North Vietnam and take Hanoi. But he doesn't have enough troops to hold Hanoi. The French become extremely disruptive to Vietnam and Taiwan and mainland China. While many of the Vietnamese collaborators are making money hand over fist, the consensus is the French should take a hike. This is the Tonkin War. As you might guess, it will end in a draw and everyone will claim victory. And the folks back home in France, they disavow everything. It becomes a real mess. The Vietnamese people are disrupted to the point where the French, in their attempt to drag Vietnam into the modern era, actually cause it to slide back. It is a lose-lose for everyone, but France will not give it up until the United States decides to lend a hand in some time after World War II. And thus, over 58,000 young men went off to fight a war in a jungle in a place called Vietnam. Most had never heard of when they uh, were sent to do this and died for absolutely, positively nothing. Now, I know that hits some of you people in the gut and you feel very upset about that because you think we should respect our Vietnam veterans. I do. I absolutely do. But what, what did we get for it? What did we get for it? We got nothing. We lost the lives of young men who were some of the finest among us, and we got nothing. We made war with a small nation who refused to yield to what we wanted, and we got nothing. And it all started back in 1884 when the French decided they didn't want to pay taxes to the Chinese, but they wanted to do business with the Chinese. We were sold that it was important for the liberty of the world. As we look at small countries that we make war with today, We should ask ourselves, what will we or other nations end up dealing with 120 years from now? Or 130 or 140 years from now? Because we wanted things our way. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Um, I want to real quick just kind of tell you about our vacation a little bit. Uh, some things we saw and did and where we were and why we kept it on the the hush-hush. Let me start out with why we didn't tell you where we were. Um, whenever we go on vacation... A lot of well-meaning people say, hey, while you're in town, I'll buy you dinner. I'll come by and have a beer with you, etc. And I know to everybody that, that, that would want to do that, well, you're just one person. But you're not one person. You're one of many people. And we have always been the type of people that feel like if you support us, if you listen to us, if you share what we do with others, uh, if you do business with us, we kind of feel obligated when you say we, you want to come be with us to, to let you. 
okay, and, and to make accommodation for that. But we were going on vacation. We weren't going out to do a seminar. We weren't going out to speak at an engagement. We weren't going out to teach. We were going on vacation. And the place we went on vacation was Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Now, in that area, it's like ground zero for TSP people, uh, both people that live there and people that have, like, vacation homes and stuff there. And it would have been completely overwhelming. And who do you say yes to and who do you say no to? And, I mean, I just felt like this. My wife puts up with a lot of shit, guys. She puts up with a lot of shit, and she shares me with the whole world on a daily basis. We have probably three or four people a month that come by and have dinner or have a couple beers and hang out and just want to see the farm and stuff like that. And I've even where sometimes I say no to that, or I don't always respond to that unless a person asks more than once. Um, and I just felt she deserved 10 days of my time totally focused on her and nothing to do with the business. That I would check email in the morning. I would respond to what had to be responded to. I'd put everything else in the follow-up category, and that's it. We are on vacation, and that's what we did. We did a lot of hiking. We, we hiked uh, four really great different uh, falls hikes in, uh, in Gatlinburg. We went to Cataract Falls. Uh, we went to Laurel Falls. We went to uh, Grotto Falls. And uh, we also went to another place that was called Abrams Falls. And uh, those were the main hikes we did. We also went about three miles up Cove Mountain and decided that was far enough after having already done the Cataract Falls hike and turned around and came back down. That made that day about a nine miles on the trail day. And if you want to go to Gatlinburg, I have some advice. Don't pick the week we did. Uh, that wrapped up against Columbus Day, which we didn't even think about, and fall break. So the weekend that we got there, it was like freaking Mickey Mouse land. I mean, there were people everywhere. But we cracked the code pretty quick. What we would do is we would get up about 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, just throw stuff together for our pack for the day, and hit the trail. And we would, you know, you hike six miles or so. It, it takes a couple, three hours at most, and you, you're done. So you're done like at 10, 30, 11 o'clock when everybody with kids and their, their mother and everybody else is finally getting there, you're leaving. And we'd be coming out of the state park and going back to Gatlinburg to do the town stuff, And, and it looked like it looked like Disneyland people heading in. I couldn't believe it. Um, so I would say go a week or two later. And they said October's their busiest time for obvious reasons. It's fall. It's beautiful, et cetera. Uh, and go early to do your hiking. And, and that worked out. We also went to a place called Cades Cove. That was pretty amazing. I recommend that. And we spent a lot of time doing the touristy stuff in town. And my wife did a little shopping. I picked up some different local honeys that I'll be making mead with. And I'll tell you the place to go. The place to go is a place called Santa's Closet. It's on this, this big loop. It's like an eight-mile loop of arts and crafts and artisans and stuff like that. It's Christmas all year round. I met Santa Claus. I got to make a video with me for my grandson, Braylon. And Braylon's eyes popped out. It's like, anybody can talk to Santa Claus around Christmas. He's all over the place. But, you know, now... So, uh, so, so as far as Braylon knows, I've got Santa on speed dial. That's probably a good thing for the next couple of months. And, uh, we had a lot of fun. And I, I hope you guys enjoyed TSP Rewind while I was gone. I'm going to be going hunting in November, nowhere near as long, but uh, I'll probably run a couple episodes of that. And I'd love to hear from you guys how you felt about TSP Rewind. And like, if you have shows that you really like that you would like when I go in the future somewhere, you'd like me to run for TSP Rewind, that, that would be great. And uh, I, I'm going to keep them commercial free. I probably will put a little spot in the intro from now on, reminding you guys of the shop T-Spaz uh, to support the show because that kind of really went downhill while we were out of town. And that you know has become a good revenue stream for us. So other than that, I'm going to keep them pretty much the way they are, and I hope you enjoyed them. Um, and I think it was nice for some of you guys to get back to kind of like old school TSP. So anyway, um, 
with that, let's talk a little bit about a subject that I've kind of harped on here and there. And uh, I think a lot of people kind of don't get what I mean when I say teachers are better paid overall than I think most people think they are. I got this email from Gary in Illinois, and he said, here is a list of some of my high school teachers in Chicago. This is how much money they're making monthly in retirement. So these are high school teachers. One is making $262,000 a year for not working. This is a racket for sure. Zoom, Zeman, Brown, and Boyle were PE teachers. No wonder Chicago is bankrupt. And I'm just going to read to you instead of the people's names, just on this list of high school teachers from the district that his kids or he went to or whatever. Um, these are monthly. These are monthly payments. so about nine grand. Then I got an eight grand, eight thousand eight hundred, eight thousand eight hundred. I'm rounding them off here, so eight thousand eight hundred, eight thousand eight hundred, eight thousand eight hundred, eight thousand eight hundred. Then I got an eighty seven hundred, eighty seven hundred, eighty six hundred, eighty four 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 hundred. This is retirement. For teachers in Chicago, one of these people that he mentioned specifically, um, Zeman. Is, let me see, look him up. So he was a PE teacher. Zeman is making eighty-four. Otto M. Zeman is making eighty-four hundred and seventy-five dollars a month in retirement for the rest of his life after teaching PE. Okay. Um, You think that maybe we have an unsustainable system here? I mean, really, I know that some people get emotional about this, but let's just be honest. How can you afford to pay a gym teacher $8,400 a month for the rest of his life for doing nothing and say it's important because teachers are heroes, and then that's why we justify it? That's $100,000 a year in retirement. And, and understand, it's not like Social Security. They can go get a job or whatever. A lot of these teachers retire 30 years, right? If you start teaching when you're 25... You know, 35, 45, 55, you can retire. There's a lot of useful life left at that point. A lot of these people go get other jobs. They go teach for other school districts. And they're making a hundred grand a year? And then you add Social Security to that, plus whatever they've saved for themselves. I mean, these people are not living hand to mouth. And I thought, well, maybe I should look up some salaries of teachers that are actually teaching in my kid's school district that he went to. Arlington ISD, Jose Calveros is the uh, superintendent. He's making over a quarter million a year. He's making 269 grand a year. And yes, there's a lot of people making like a hundred thousand, like 149, 142, 134. I'm going down a list. 134, 134, 134, 132, 130. Most of these people are administrators. Um, one guy, a guy named Mark here, he's making about a hundred and twenty thousand a year. He is the customer service rep for human resources for the school district. He's the HR customer service person. Really? You're going to tell me teachers are underpaid and a guy who is a customer service agent for the HR department makes a hundred and freaking twenty grand a year? I thought, well, let's see what some teachers are making. So I went way down the list. I went to page six, listing 500 people per page. I went to the bottom of the page, and I still found people making 52 grand a year. Now, look, I'm going to be the first person to say, $52,000 a year is not a high-paying job. 
But it is a decent paying job. And if we factor in that some of these people making $52,000, like all of them, are teachers. By the time we get down the list there, I mean, administrators don't get paid like that. That's too low for administrators, at least in Arlington, Texas. Okay, don't work three months out of the year. And don't give me this shit about lesson plans and continuing education. I don't want to hear it. I know too many teachers. They don't do shit in the summertime. They might go in for a week to get their classroom ready before school starts back up. So I looked up this one person here, and she teaches fine arts in an elementary school. She's been teaching for four years, and she makes fifty-two grand a year, four years into it. But I thought all teachers were living in poverty. Look, when we look at this, and you can go to the site yourself and, and look up whatever you want to look up, and you get to look up like four or five things, and then they say you have to pay a subscription. Um, I, you, I think if you clear your cookies, you can keep looking stuff up if you wanted to without paying. Um, but it's called OpenTheBooks.com, and it gives insight to things like public employee payments. And when you look at this, and you, you have to ask yourself, okay, I'm not saying it's not a good thing to be doing, okay? But is teaching, because I looked up this person, right, is teaching sixth graders to do a production of The Lion King worth $52,000 a year for someone that's been teaching for four years. Is that really something that you can say financially makes sense? Especially when you look at kids in like 6th, 7th grade, and you look at how many participate in these fine arts programs, and you realize it's, it's a very small portion of the whole school. It's not like when you have the little second graders and like, Eh, like they have a, a, a musical and everybody's in it, right? It's like the whole school's part of it for like one thing a year. No, this is like, you know, like my niece does this. I, I'm not putting down the concept. My niece is in high school now and she does all the plays and musicals and stuff. She just did a, a, a part in uh, Shakespeare uh, with Julius Caesar uh, is the main uh, play that was there. I can't remember what it's called now, but it basically combines Caesar and, and, and Mark Antony. Cleopatra, the whole two different plays into one short. It was called Rex, right? It was good. It was fun watching them. I, I was entertained by it, even though they were younger kids. But it was a, a handful of kids, so many, so few, that many of the male parts, kind of a Shakespearean reversal, were paid by, played by girls because they didn't have enough males participating. So you're not dealing with it. 50 grand for a part time job? Teaching kids to do plays of public money from tax. Now, if you can, if you can set that up and you can pay a person 50 grand and people voluntarily want to send their kids, that's great. That's the free market. But the education system is going to collapse on itself. It, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's like a star heading toward black hole at this point. It's gotten too big, too heavy, and it doesn't have enough energy to keep the process going anymore. We can't be, pay be paying four-year teachers $50,000 to teach fine arts, or some of these other people I looked up, they're like a science teacher in sixth grade. Okay, so you know what that means. They teach one class four or five times a day, four or five different classes that come through. And they're making 50, 60 grand. And the, the science teacher I'm thinking of that I looked up like that was actually making $72,000. Sixth grade science teacher. And it's not easy because you just get the teacher. So then you have to look the teacher up and find the school they work for and see if you, they lift the staff. But it, it took a little research. But So I got a, a science teacher making 72 grand a year to teach sixth grade science. I think it had seven or eight years 
under their belt. So what are they going to be making in, in, in another five, ten years? What are they going to be paid in retirement for 30 or 40 years? I'm not putting down the teachers. I'm just saying this, these numbers don't work. So you can look them up yourself. But I want you to think about this as, as we talk about things in the future and today, like automation. Okay, automation. Because if this is what it takes to get teachers well paid, is there a way to, to reduce the total number of teachers we need and give students a better learning experience? Because this is what people always try to say, but they kind of talk around it. Well, the teachers are heroes and all. Like, real heroes don't wear capes. They teach, like the sign down the road says here. But in the end, the reason it's so important is the children. Well, is it the teachers that are so important or is it the children? Are the teachers important because of the children? And if that's the case, fine. I'm not saying it's not. But then that means the number one priority isn't paying a science teacher 70 grand a year to, to, to work six hours a day. And I don't want to hear the bullshit because I know better. Oh, they work till midnight only if they don't know how to do their jobs right. Okay? I'm sorry. But to pay that teacher that or is it more important that the child get the education? And if that's the case, then there's a lot of ways available today to get that child a better custom-tailored education than we get by paying that teacher that amount of money. And if we can do better for the child regardless of how negatively it might affect people who have chosen education as a profession, shouldn't we put the child's needs first? And with that, let's talk about automation and leave the public education or education sector completely behind because the stuff that's up on this program is autonomous vehicle security, energy, industrial manufacturing, and the intro segment called The Great Rewrite. This is on Forbes. I will link to it for you in the show notes, and you can watch the other four chapters. This one's about three minutes. I'm going to play it for you now. Just kind of take it in. There's no video going along with it, so it might be worth watching the video for it as well. But I'll come back to you with my thoughts on how I think we really are under-grasping how, how much effect automation is going to have on all of us in the next 10 years. We are at this place that we've never been before. The Great Rewrite is about a fundamental resetting of this planet's operating system. It's a way to look at all of the bits and pieces that are evolving and changing on the planet. Technology, behavior, capital markets that are creating this perfect storm where this world in which we've built was built on a paradigm of this sort of top-down pyramid. So you've got a CEO, you've got a principal, you've got a prime minister or a president, and you tend to flow power from the top down. We are living in this state of sort of societal seasickness where this pyramid is slowly inverting because of technology. To think about what a rewriter is, you have to distinguish it between innovation and disruption. Innovation felt like we had outgrown it. And innovation today really just means doing stuff better. If you're a company in 2016, 2017 that has an innovation department, you are missing the point. It's the job of everybody in that organization. Disruption is somebody comes into a market, bottom of the pyramid, and they eat their way up the food chain. A rewrite has something much more impactful on the tail end of it. It is about systemic change demonstrated by a ripple effect that whatever they do in the industry that they're rewriting, it has deep impact on other industries that was often unintended. 
Uber today as it exists is not a rewrite. It's a disruption of the taxi business. It's a transportation disruption. The driverless autonomous vehicle is a rewrite because it's a drop that has deep ripples. It's changing almost everything it touches. It's going to change the way the urban landscape looks. It's going to affect the environment. It's going to deeply affect the number of vehicles on the road, safety, insurance. It's also going to affect geopolitically our dependence on oil and on other fossil fuels, which affects our position in the world. So we should also be asking ourselves not just about how this impacts business, but what the age of rewriting is going to mean to just the average person living on this planet. So the goal for me and the goal for the program is to up the dialogue. We want to give people three things. One is a North Star that they can look at and question and challenge. And when they look at the world and they feel that innate confusion about the underlying change, they have a framework. This is about fundamental institutional shift on the planet. Second thing is to try to give concrete, great stories about how this is playing out on the planet today, how we're seeing it in verticals like manufacturing and healthcare and the financial sector and energy. And thirdly, try to give some answers about what you do about it. A playbook that you can utilize to be able to at least engage in a world that's being rewritten around you. I, I think maybe the most important single line in that intro piece is... Uber is not a rewrite, it's a disruptor. And we've talked a lot about technological disruptors, but here's how Uber is a disruptor versus a rewrite, in case you didn't catch it. Let's say I run a taxi company. Well, Uber's bad for me. I can't compete with Uber as a taxi owner. And I don't mean it like some people own their individual cars. I'm talking about the guy that actually owns Metro Cab or whatever that handles dispatch and, and manages. And, and the reason I can't compete is not about economics in of itself. Uber has multiple levels of service. There's like the basic low-cost Uber, and it'll cost you a little less than a cab. And some guy will come tooling up in kind of a few-year-old Nissan Ultima or something like that, you know, or a, a, a Kia or some crap like that. And, and it, it's a ride, and it works, okay? Um, but then Uber Black is kind of like the, the the where you get a nice car. Like you either get a really nice like Lincoln or like you know you get a, a really like a, an awesome SUV with a great sound system that you can play your own phone over and stuff like that. And that costs the same as a cab, so I get a better quality of service for the same price. But it doesn't end there. It, it, it doesn't end there. Oh, did I hear what I said about the phone? Yeah, I can get into an Uber. At an Uber Black, and I can just like pull up my playlist and 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 start playing my music on their sound system. Does that work for you when you have the guy with the turban driving you around DC in the old yellow cab? I'm not putting the guy with the turban down. I'm just saying, come on. Now, here's why it's a disruptor. Because many taxi drivers have said, you know what, I'm tired of fighting this. Oh wait, before we go to that. The other thing that the taxis can't compete with is let's say I need an Uber and I'm in an area with Uber service. I pull my Uber app up. I say, this is where I am, on a map, boop, and this is where I want to go, boop, and I go, click, and it says, regular service is this, X is this, black is that, it tells me how much my, how many people are around, how long it'll be before somebody gets there, 
Do you want this? Yes. Boom. And I see the driver, like in a couple seconds, you know, Tom has picked up your request. He's driving this color car and he's on the way. And I see a little dot and there's Tom coming down. And, and I realize Tom's at the wrong end. And I go, contact driver. Hey, Tom, this is Jack. Your, your ride. Yeah. Yeah, dude, you're on the wrong side of the hotel. I'm on the other side. Okay. Yeah. Come on over. Boom. Taxis can't compete with that. But for the taxi driver, you know what many of them have done? I'm going to go lease a nice car and work for Uber. They just migrated. That's a disruptor. It's bad for the owner, but it's not really that bad for the employee. It's the autonomous driving vehicle that is the rewriter. That is the rewriter. And as you watch the five chapters they have so far in this series, they, the one on autonomous vehicles hints at it. A subscription service. A subscription service. So instead of a car payment, you have a subscription service. And that means you don't have car insurance premiums anymore. They're, they're in a group buy because they're precipitated across the entirety of the fleet. And uh, so let's say that maybe once a month you really kind of need a pickup truck. You, you know, you, you kind of need one because about once a month you go to a Home Depot or Lowe's and you have some kind of project you're doing where you need to get that stuff home. And, and, and up till now, that's justified one of your vehicles being a $40,000 pickup truck. But maybe you have a $400 or $300 a month subscription. Now, remember, you're not paying gas here. You're not paying insurance here. And most of the time, you just need to kind of go to work and back or whatever, and you have a subscription that says you get X number of rides, X number of miles, etc. And by selecting group riding and carpooling, you, you can you can get a lower rate. So what happens is you get in the car, and the car cruises over to Bill's house, it picks up Bill, it cruises by Tom's house, it picks up Tom, and it cruises you off, drops you off at work, drops Bill off at work, drops Tom off at work, and when it's time to be picked up, the car comes back, and you might not be with Bill and Tom this time. You might be with uh, Susie and Debbie, or maybe no one, because there was no one available, but the fact that you were willing to reduce the price. And on your third Sunday of the month, when you usually need the pickup truck, you request a pickup truck, and a truck shows up. You get inside of it, it takes you to Home Depot, you load your shit, and it takes you home. It may even be the case that you say, I need a truck at Home Depot at 9 o'clock. And you take your, you know, you keep, now you go down to a one-vehicle family instead of a two-vehicle family, and you tool your butt over to Home Depot, and the truck meets you there, you load it up, it follows you home, and goes off to help somebody else. This is what's coming. You're going to have a phone that summons robotic vehicles to do your bidding. That sounds great. Saves you money. Saves you time. Less vehicles on the road. Less traffic. The more of these vehicles we have, the less traffic problems we'll have. Because they can talk to each other and adjust speed and what have you to eliminate it. See, an autonomous vehicle is not interested in a guy changing a tire on the side of the road. It's not. Other than not hitting them. That's it. That just keeps going. It doesn't rubberneck. So this all sounds great, except how many jobs involve driving a vehicle? And some of them that do, for now, maybe won't be disrupted just yet when they first start doing this. My son has got a new job, and one of the things he does, he drives around this great big truck, actually a van, and he does installation of uh, eyewash cabinets for uh, a company that does uh, safety stuff. And if you happen to you know, buy safety products on a company in Dallas or Worth, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to help them grow their company. And so that vehicle could go there, but someone has to do the work for now. 
But don't you think that is all part of, I mean, to be fair, an industry that's, that's kind of built on government regulations and all, and can't we get to a point where that stuff's all autonomous within the facility? Hopefully for him, not for another 10 or 15 years so he can build a career out of it, but come on, right? I mean, it's just not that hard to provide a place for people to wash their eyes out if they get chemicals in them. So even those types of jobs maybe have a little more longevity, But can you see that person that has that job now maybe being doing the job of two people? Instead of being paid to drive, instead of being paid to drive, they do account service work on a computer while the truck drives. Then they do the human part of the job, get back in the truck, and now the employer gets two employees for the cost of one. And, and then the, the employee's not screwing off because the van takes them where it's supposed to go. I mean, Now, I, I got to admit, I, I, I did have one little hiccup in my feelings about autonomous vehicles while I was on vacation. I was driving these roads in the Smoky Mountains, like one-way roads with people in front of you and behind you, and it's raining. And like, if you go off the ledge, you go down like a thousand feet and crash into a fiery ball. And it was, it was pretty intense driving at some points. I'm like, I don't know how I feel about a computer doing this. But if they cleared the road to test the computer and threw 20 computerized cars on there and they all did it better than the people, the idiots in front of me and behind me, I might change my mind. And I think that's another thing. It's, a part of this is all people adapting to it and accepting it and, and stop being afraid of Because everybody's always afraid of new technology. It's going to end the world, what have you, uh, and, and especially when it comes to giving up control of a situation. you know. But every time you're in a car and you're not the one driving, you've given up control to somebody else. A computer called a brain in another person's head that made me more susceptible to flaws than an actual program computer. But here's the subscription service. I, I think we see this coming. Ford is saying that they're going to have an entire fleet of Ford vehicles that are autonomous and deployed by 2021. They're not talking about selling them to you and me. They're talking about exactly this. So the car business is going to change. Not just in that it will be making less cars, but more advanced cars. But instead of selling cars, leasing cars, it's going to change into a service business. Not completely. I, I mean, I, I can't see the day that I don't have a vehicle I can drive. Now, I also said at one time in my life, I will never have a cell phone. I remember when I got my first pager, and I was behind the times already, and people were getting cell phones left and right, and I'm like, I don't want to be bothered. I will never own a cell phone. You can't get my phone away from me today. Not for the phone features, for all the other things that it does. So I could be wrong about that. Maybe there will be a day that I don't own a vehicle. When I'm an old man, right, and I, I can't drive really well anymore, that would be a case. But I mean, while I'm capable, I see myself having a vehicle I can jump in and go do something that I want to with. But I also see this. You know, every once in a while, we talk about how my truck's paid for. We have a stupid low payment on our 4Runner. It would be nice to have another vehicle, a third vehicle like we used to before we lost the Dodge. If this service exists, I don't need another vehicle. I don't want another vehicle. Why would you want one right now? Well, um, it was nice being the, the person in the family that when someone's vehicle was in the shop, we could loan them one, or when somebody came into town, we could loan them one and, and not do without I don't actually like to drive my giant F-350 truck everywhere I go. If I need to go down to the grocery store and pick a couple things up because some people are coming over and I want to do something special for them, I take the Toyota when Dorothy's home. 
Otherwise, I got this giant beast. So there was, there's all these reasons I kind of, like, I don't really need it. So I'm kind of miserly with money. I don't want to spend money I don't need to spend. But yeah, I kind of could. But if this existed, if Uber covered my area, I'd ride it off right now, man. I'd take an Uber rather than drive that truck when I, when I don't really want to. Right? Because I'm not going to be spending the money on the diesel fuel and all. It all works out in the end. But if we have this kind of like subscription vehicle service, <laughs> rewrite. Uh, now, I will say this if you're going to go watch it. It's clear that, For that Forbes is featuring businesses and doing some promotion and some theatrics here. But, man, um, it'll kind of blow you away if you watch the whole series. Like I said, I didn't give it my full attention. I plan on doing that later this week. Let's move on to another topic. And I mean a completely different topic. I want to give you a lot of variety today since I was gone for 10 days. Um, Jack, this comes from Roy. Can you explain the minimum requirements needed to teach a PDC or practice as a permaculture design professional? I have completed Jeff Lawton's online PDC and nearly completed the Permaethos PDC and understood that with only a PDC, I could fully practice in all areas, that there was no controlling governing body for permaculture, though it was prudent to gain as much knowledge experience as possible to become confident. I plan to offer PDCs at my farm. At future point, use past projects and physical examples of some techniques of their uses. I'm now signed up for Gaia's Garden through Permaethos and read through Toby's links to the Permaculture Institute USA that is now required to have a permaculture diploma to be a lead teacher, certificate signer, and many of the requirements to earn this diploma, you had to complete two PDCs, only one of which could be online, and a whole lot of submittal of portfolios and fees, and so on and on and on. If you teach a PDC without diploma, then your student's certificate would not be valid. Oh, I, I'm going to try not to say anything bad because my good friend Toby works with these people. I'm going to try to hold my view of this a little bit. This is getting much more expensive, time-intensive, and complicated to teach PDCs, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to stop reading there because here's how it works. Okay. You can go out tomorrow with no knowledge whatsoever and teach a PDC because no one owns the word, no one has any controlling uh, authority over it, and there is no governing body, and we can thank the late Bill Mollison, for that, because he said if there is anybody with control over it, they will destroy it, they will stick it in the universities, his words, not mine, and nothing destroys an idea faster than a government or a university, and if you allow both of them to be involved, they will ruin it. So it shall never be. And he set it up to make sure that it could never be. Okay, now, the Permaculture Institute USA has their own program. And if you want to certify your student under their program, you have to do their shit. If you want to certify your student under any other program, you do that other program's shit. If you want to certify your students by saying, I'm good, this is what I've done, this is my background, here's your PDC, you do that. And in any of those instances, you can go to Permaculture Global that's run by the actual real Permaculture Institute in Australia where the founders set things up. And you can register there as a teacher, and you can have your students listed and certified under you, and anybody can do that. Now, if you want to say, I took a course with Jack Spiritos, Perma Ethos, then you have to, when you finish it, put that on your resume. It'll go out to our lead instructor, Josiah. He goes and ticks it off. And there's an accountability then that if you say, I took all these courses, that they're there. You can publish your designs and your projects there, and people can go see them and judge for themselves. This is called the free market. Okay, I actually have no problem with the program that the Permaculture Institute USA out of New Mexico has set up. 
what I have a problem with is they often infer that they are the authority when they are no authority at all. They are a fine organization that does fine things, and that's wonderful. And if you would like to add them as your credential, as an arrow in your permaculture quiver, then so be it. Then so be it. However, they can't say in any way, shape, or form that anybody's program is not valid at all, period, the end, infinity. It would be like Harvard Business School saying it's only valid to say you have a business degree if you attended Harvard Business School. Or, well, at least one of the other Ivy League schools. No. Harvard can say, we are Harvard. We believe we have the finest business school in the world, and our graduates are among the best. And then it's up for their graduates and them to prove that. That's fine. That's a free market. But when it comes to permaculture, no one is in charge. No one is in charge. One more flipping time, because it really pisses me off. No one's in charge. Jeff Lawton's not in charge. David Holgram, co-founder, not in charge. Before he passed away a few weeks ago, Bill Mollison, not in charge. Jack Spierko, not in charge. Paul Wheaton, not in charge. Seb Holzer, not in charge. You get it yet? Not in charge. And, and, anyone that says they are is either wrong or lying. I leave it to you. And I think, to be fair, again, to PRI USA, okay, that was set up with assistance from Bill Mollison, what they've done is they've made their marketing appear that way, but if you really read it, it doesn't really claim that they're in charge. They're saying, we have this program, it's the best program in the world, and the certified teachers from this program. Okay, fine. I have my own program. And the market is to judge. And what that means is your students should look at the entirety of your work and your background and what you do. Because I can tell you right now, you can go through their certification process and still be a lousy teacher. You can go through a very similar program that PRI Australia offers to, to get not just certified as a permaculturist, but certified as a PRI certified instructor. And what I like about Jeff's program with PRI Australia is they don't infer that you can't teach a PDC. They're just saying, this is an added credential, and if your instructor has this, this might be valuable to you. All right, And you could do that, and you could still be a lousy teacher, because teaching is a skill. There's plenty of those teachers we talked about today that are making 50, 60, 70, 80 grand that are great teachers. And there's plenty of them that suck. Their credentials don't make them good. What you need to be a good permaculture teacher is an ability to convey with passion the facts and realities and design science of permaculture in a way that reaches into your student and moves them and this is true of any subject, and gains them a fundamental understanding so that they can progress on their own. That's what you need to be a great teacher. And no one gets to decide who has that except the free market itself. You can go out, read a whole bunch of books, never take a permaculture certification course, and you can teach a PDC. And if you do a good job on it and the market rewards you for it, then fine. Then fine. Now, if you say you have taken a PDC and you have not, then you're a liar, okay? Then you're a liar. But if somebody wants to say, I've never taken a PDC, I've seen parts and pieces of this, and i put my own together, and this is my, this is Jack Spierko's PDC, and people want to buy it, fine. There's nothing anybody can do about it. So, Roy, 
Continue on with that. I know that's part of like your, you know, eventual retirement thing. You want to do this. Continue on. Build your studies. And if you see value in doing additional things with PRI USA, then do it. But don't do it because you think you are required to. This isn't like your job requires a bachelor's degree, so you have to go to an accredited university. It doesn't work that way. And anybody that tells you it does is either wrong or lying. And I leave it to you to decide for yourself which one that is. Anyway, let's take another one. Great little short success story here from Clark. Clark says, uh, Jack, this is a reply to the ADD question. My daughter was diagnosed with ADHD by the school system. Hold on, I'll stop right there. Yeah, school system shouldn't be diagnosing people. That's a job for doctors to do and not doctors that are on the payroll of the school to just rubber stamp shit. Well, I'll return to Clark's email. But we refuse to zombify her with Ritalin. Good for you, Clark. She takes a caffeine pill in the morning and possibly again in the evening if she has something she needs to really concentrate on. We also eliminated sugary breakfast foods and replaced them with protein like eggs and bacon. And also oatmeal still cut. We put her on and maintained a schedule that included martial arts training. It took her grades from failing to the principal's list. She is now a successful independent commercial artist. If we had succumbed to the mass hysteria, she would not have realized her dreams. Thanks for all you do, Clark from Tennessee. Uh, yeah. And you know what gets me the most about doping these kids up with methamphetamine? Which is, it's meth. When you give your kids Ritalin and this other shit, you're giving them freaking speed. You're giving them speed. You're giving them speed. You're giving them speed. Okay? That's the truth. You can look it up if you doubt me. Right? I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. But I'm telling you, it's meth. When you give these kids meth, they act like, without this, they'll never lead a normal life. Okay, I'm not that freaking old, guys. I'm in my 40s, the 70s and the 80s. We didn't have this shit. Now, we had kids that were hyperactive and stuff like that, but we didn't have meth to give them. We didn't have this dope that they just put all these kids on. Somehow, all of us freaking made it out alive. Somehow, all of us built lives for ourselves. So, you people that tell me, well, there's no way. I mean, it was just impossible. You're full of shit. You're full of shit. Because there wouldn't be anybody left. The population would be half of what it is because we would have all been suicidal and died and failed at life. We would have sucked at life so bad we would have succeeded in nothing. I guarantee you, if there's a child out there today that's eight years old that's like Jack Spirico was when he was eight years old, he has been labeled ADHD and in uh, and having a condition known as Asperger's, which is mild autism, and they're trying to help him with dope. Right? Well, if they helped me with dope, I want you to say everybody out there listening to me that I've ever helped, by one thing I've said that's made your life better, that's given you something you can do. If they helped me with dope, I would have never been able to help you. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're abusing our children with dope. They're saying, stay, do no, don't say no to drugs. Don't do drugs. Oh God, Johnny, if you take one puff of a marijuana cigarette, it will destroy your life. Now eat your meth. Bullshit. Don't let them dope your kids, folks. Don't let them dope your kids. I just feel that way, if you can't tell. Anyway, let's go on to another one. How about after snapping out like that, we have a firearms question, right? That'll freak some people out. Anyway, uh, this is pretty interesting uh, from JD. JD says, hello and welcome back, Jack. Going for a 2-4 on the Monday show. Question, 44 mag versus 357 mag in a lever rifle. I've pretty much decided on a new lever rifle, probably going with the Rossi Model 92 carbine. 
It is a copy of the famous Browning design by Winchester, model 1892 from Songs and Movies. I'm sure you know. The rub is I like the 44 mag. I plan on using this for hunting deer, pigs, uh, whatever I feel is ethical with this caliber. And the 44 mag and pistol has taken over, taken about every hunted animal species on the continent. When I choose a pistol and caliber to hunt with several years ago with a single action style uh, army in 44 mag. So I know the answer should be go with that your choice. Uh, that's what you are comfortable with and works better for all the reasons above. But you and so many of my local friends expound the virtues of the 357 Magnum. You can reload it uh, way down and shoot 38s in them for target practice. This is very common with the Rossi 92 and 357. I do reload, so that's not an issue with either the 44 or 357. And on and on in reference to the 357, it's many pleasant qualities. So I guess I want your opinion on the caliber you would choose and why, JD in West Virginia. Okay, so this is what I'm going, how I'm going to put it. Both answers are right. What do you want? And I think the best way that we can take away all the smoke and bullshit around this subject is to just do this. The 357 Magnum is the 20 gauge, and the 44 Magnum is the 12. Anything. That the 357 Magnum can do when it comes to terminal performance, the 44 can do better. But anything the 44 can do, pretty much the 357 can do. It just doesn't do it as well. It just doesn't do it as well. Now, on the other side, for the shooter, the 357 can be a more pleasant gun to shoot. While the 44 Magnum in recoil in a rifle is insignificant, is not as insignificant as the 357. Therefore, the 357 is a faster follow-up shooting gun. The ammo weighs less and the ammo costs less. And it costs less whether you reload or not. If you look at buying the ammo, it costs less. If you look at reloading the ammo, it costs significantly less. In some ways, you can save more money by reloading the 357 than by reloading the 44. Because 44 Magnum slugs are expensive. It uses more powder. The, the cartridge cases are a little more expensive. All in all, the 357 is a more pleasant experience for the shooter. The 44 provides better, better terminal performance on game. Now, does it have a real practical difference? In other words, are there shots I would take with the 44 that I wouldn't take with the 357? And no. Not because the 357 is that badass, but because the 44 is that limited. Right, so I'm not going to try to break a bone with the 44 that I wouldn't try to break with the 357 if the, I have an on-angling shot or something like that. I'm going to wait for the right shot with either one. Um, I might shoot a little further with a 44, but I mean, deer hunting in West Virginia with a lever gun is a hundred yard game, right? Hundred yard or less game. So both of them are more than adequate at that. I would actually tell you that in my personal experience, my personal experience in shooting different rifles, so single shots, lever guns. Uh, with both, so same rifle, different cartridge, I have found the 357 to be a little bit more inherently accurate. Not a lot more, but just consistency. Um, it's quieter, even with a full-powered load, and it's damn deadly on deer. So you can't go wrong with it. I would, though, believe it or not, steer you toward the 44, because you have a 44 caliber handgun already. 
and you like it and it shoots well and it's what you want and that's where I would head you. But that's how I, if you weren't sold yourself on that, that's how I'd make the decision. Stop thinking of something that's so mysterious like a handgun and a rifle and it's a 357 Magnum and the 44s killed everything and the 357 well kind of did too. Everything in North America before the 44 came around, Elmer Keith was shooting basically souped up 38 specials. That were the that were the predecessor of the 357. He pretty much killed everything, right? And just started thinking about it like that. Like, you know what? I can knock that pheasant down at 25 yards with a 12 gauge or a 20 gauge, but a 20 gauge overall does a better job of it. That that's kind of the way to think about it. So I hope you enjoyed that answer. It's kind of a new way of approaching it for me, but uh, it basically makes me think back to an article written by Peter Capstick in uh, Sportsfield Magazine that was called exactly that. Whatever the 20-gauge can do, the 12-gauge can do better. And I, I think it's a, a fundamentally accurate statement, even though I love both 12s and 20-gauges, and even though I love both the 357 and the 44 Magnum in a rifle. Uh, my next rifle, uh, based on some conversations with someone coming to this coming event, is probably going to be a Ruger 77 and 357. That's uh, something I've been looking for for a while, uh, a, a really nice bolt-action 357, and uh, I, I won't have any problem shooting deer with it, none at all. Let's take another one. So the next one involves the Ass Clown Circus of 2016. We also call that what, folks? We call that the election 2016. The most important election. I can't even say it. I, I can't even say it. I, I am more and more. I'll just, I'm not really going to talk about the election itself. Uh, I'll talk more about how it impacts families. We've got two separate emails that are kind of the same way uh, here. And, and I don't want your family damaged over idiots that don't care about you. But... I am with the way the media is treating Trump wanting the guy to win. I, I, I don't think it really matters in the end, but I think watching everybody lose their shit over it would be fantastic. And it is obvious that the press is colluding uh, with the Clinton campaign to push him out. So just out of spite, I want to see the guy win. Now my state, Texas, goes Trump. doesn't matter what I think or do or what I tell you about it, so it doesn't matter. And I think keep that in mind as we examine these two different emails, one short and one quite long. Uh, this one comes from Adam. Adam says, so my wife is very upset that I've chosen not to vote for president this year. I told her that if I plant just one tree this year, it will do more good for the world than if I vote. She asked me, well, what if everyone did that instead of voting? I told her the world might just be perfect. I think 100 million people will vote roughly this time around. What if 100 million people got out on election day and instead of voting planted trees? That might That might actually be... A good thing. Now, this other email is a little more complicated and kind of dissects the problem a little more that I want you guys to be careful with as we go through the Sasquatch Circus. Hi, Jack. I've always heard you talk about this, and now I'm experiencing it myself. My son just turned four, spends his days with my mother and my in-laws while my wife and I work. My father-in-law is a staunch conservative, has Fox News on all day, every day. Rush Limbaugh on in his office, in the radio, in the car, whatever, driving. My son has been exposed to conservative news programming pretty much five days a week since he's been born. This pains me a great deal, not because I'm offended. It's conservative bullshit versus liberal bullshit, but because he's being programmed right before my eyes, and I'd rather he wasn't. When the TV is off, except in random football or baseball game, unless he happens to be watching cartoons on Netflix, other than that, he's on a steady diet of Bruce Springsteen and Bob Marley in the evenings. And on weekends, we try to counterbalance the crap he's got to put up with on the weekdays. I've always tolerated it because of our dependence on them for daycare. And the fact that this annoyance aside, uh, they take good care of my son and good influence in him. Today it reached a breaking point, however, when my son, on the way home with his mother in the car, informed her 
Donald Trump is good. Hillary is bad. This is too much. And I must address it with my father-in-law. I have reasons lined up to tell him why he can't be using my grandson as his political mouthpiece and continue to infect him with this bullshit. I hope that the conversation goes well, but I'm also just disappointed. I couldn't help but think of you, your beliefs about the dichotomy only serving to divide families. Here I am uh, with my wife, actively choosing to remove ourselves from the dichotomy as much as we can, and yet we're still dragged in involuntarily. And I'm, I'm, okay, I'm concerned for my son's well-being. I'm not writing to ask for advice, just to vent a little, I guess, and let you know that, yep, you're right again, sadly. Also, maybe if you choose to read this, it might help others going through similar dichotomous issues with family. I didn't know that was a word, dichotomous. I guess it would make sense, right? Dichotomous issues. I'm going to start using that word. It makes me sound smart. Thank you, dude. Uh, anyway, and you might have some words of encouragement for everybody as we are close in on this election. It feels like we can't get any worse right now, but I know there's like three more weeks left of it. Hey, even if you don't read this on your show or respond, can you play some Bob Marley? Send people out on a good note. I will probably play some Bob Marley this week just because you asked, but not today. So here's what I want to say about this. Be careful of damaging your family relationships over this issue. Your kid's four. He comes home and says Donald Trump's good and Hillary's bad. Uh, his memory of this is not going to be lasting. It's not going to really influence his life long term. What you do as his father and what your wife does as his mother and what he sees and the influences and, and simply like, okay, here's what I would say. If he was eight, I would say, well, why do you think that? How have you examined this? I would have a deep philosophical discussion as deep as you could have with an eight year old on it, right? With a four year old, he doesn't even know what he's saying. He doesn't even know what he's saying. He doesn't have any idea why he believes what he's saying. He doesn't even really believe it. He's just repeating what he heard. And what probably happened is your dad's probably not going, all right, I want to teach you again today why to vote for Trump versus Hillary. Probably what happened is this kid at some point in the midst of all of this asked the question, and your father-in-law put it in words that he thought a four-year-old would understand. Well, basically, Donald Trump's good and Hillary's bad. Now, I know how that doesn't sit right with you. I, I get that. But in the end, it's, it's pretty harmless. And I wouldn't damage a familial relationship over it. I would suggest maybe that it might be better that the child be given time with childish things rather than adult things while he's there. Like, can we, can we play, set up a place where he can watch a cartoon or play a game or can we have more outside time? Do we really need to have this stuff? Because, and see, instead of saying, like, like Trump sucks too, just say the way they're covering this is pretty pretty nasty for a four-year-old to listen to. And I'd prefer that maybe he get a little less of it. Like that would be kind of the approach I'd take to it. Because this is a reality. Over the next three weeks, this shit's going to build up to a complete shit storm. And then just like a fart in the wind, it's all going to go away and we're going to be stuck with whoever we get for the next four years and it'll go back to its normal frequency of dissidence. But between now and then, that dissidence is going to grow to a huge, ear-shattering, ear mind-numbing level of stupidity. And there's no reason to fight with your family about it. Because you changing their mind isn't going to change what happens. Them changing your mind isn't going to change what happens. You hating each other over it won't change what happens. It just won't. It's all meaningless bullshit. And I know you, some of you are like, it's, it is important, and the Supreme Court justice is like, okay, that's fine, but it doesn't, the reason I'm saying it doesn't matter is because you're not going to change the way that it's going to work out. This is a popularity contest, for God's sakes. This is, this is less about issues than a high school president 
you know, a high school student body president election. This is more about freaking popularity and making the other side look bad than that ever was. And, and that's why we have all of this nonsense going on. And like I said, I do believe that the press is absolutely in the tank for Hillary Clinton. I do believe that, it, that, that the shit that's come out of WikiLeaks about her proves criminal activity like crazy. And I believe that the press is burying it. They're not talking about it. They're talking about all these women that say, Trump groped me. Really, 15 years ago, Trump groped you. A billionaire gropes you. 15 years ago. And you forgot about it until three weeks before this election? I, I, I'm sorry I have to question your integrity a little bit here. I just do. I, I, I'm not saying he didn't do it. I'm saying it just doesn't. It doesn't. The, the preponderance of evidence would vindicate at this point, this is all bullshit. Right? And some of you are mad at me for that. And some of you are mad at me for saying it doesn't matter. And so, Again. I could, I could do this today. I could go, friends, ladies and gentlemen, I have been reborn in the world of politics, and I think it is the most important election in our lifetime, and I think we should all work very hard to get, fill in the blank, elected. And it wouldn't matter what name I filled that blank in with. Even with the influence that I have, even being able to reach 150,000 of you a day, I would not sway the election. So you are not going to sway the election. Your father-in-law is not going to sway the election. Your brother isn't. This is the mass hysteria of the lemmings that will make this decision. The people that are going to decide this election are the people who, at this point, still just aren't sure who they're going to vote for. That's who's going to decide this election. Now, you have to ask yourself, do you really want those people making decisions for you? A person that, at this point... In the cycle, still can't figure out, well, which one, right? The swing voters, the mushy middle, the 20%, that little piece that everybody fights over. Do you want them making decisions for you? No? Well, here's the problem. They're going to. They're going to. And there's, there's nothing you can do about it. So when I say it doesn't matter, I'm not saying it doesn't have implications. I'm saying worrying about it is pointless because it doesn't matter what you think. It's going to happen the same way. So your, your energy needs to be focused on the things that actually do matter in your life that you also influence. There's a whole shitload of things you're concerned about. I'm concerned too. I will admit it concerns me to think of Hillary Clinton appointing the next Supreme Court justice. That concerns me. Do you know how much influence I have on that? The square root of F all. That, that sums up my influence, and it sums up your influence too. You're more likely to break your neck by tripping on a dropped piece of paper at the polling place and die while voting as you are to influence the national election. So why worry about it? It's, it's problem analysis. You have a problem. Can you do something about it? Yes. Okay, then don't worry about it. Do that. Can you do something about it? No. Okay, then don't worry about it and go do what you can do. Now, if the problem is you were just given a terminal diagnosis, you're going to worry. You're going to worry. And you still should follow that, well, what can I do with the time I have left? How can I you know, come to peace with members of my family? Whatever. You should still go that way. But that should put it in perspective for you. What scares you more? Terminal liver disease or Hillary Clinton? Terminal liver disease or Donald Trump? I'll take either one of them over terminal liver cancer. Either one of them over it. Because as long as I'm here, 
I get to write the rules of my life. Your children that go with grandma or grandpa can be influenced to either side of this. And if you raise them with that mentality, it won't matter. It will help them actually understand how good people can be wrapped up in this dichotomy. Because, well, grandma was and grandpa was, and they were good people. They just didn't know any better. That has to be the path you help them walk. That's my thoughts on it anyway. Let's take another one. How about a little uh, report from somebody in the middle of this disaster that I missed? Hurricane Matthew was on vacation. And, oh, that was another reason, you know, that um, Gatlinburg was so full of tourists So it was Columbus Day on Monday, so it was a long weekend. Fall break for the kids, which, what is fall break? When the hell did this start? I thought fall break was like Thanksgiving. Because at first I thought it was just college, but then there were these little kids all, anyway. Like, so that goes on. But then there was a whole bunch of people who had flown into like Charlotte and what have you that had vacations planned on the coast, and they defaulted to places like Asheville and Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg. Right, So I missed this whole thing. I wasn't watching day-to-day -day news reports on it. I went on vacation because there was a disaster, and I couldn't do anything about it. So I focused on what I could do, which was enjoy my vacation, I promised my wife. See? Just like politics. Anyway, Jack, Hurricane Matthew brought my county, Robinson, uh, Roberson County, North Carolina, its own little shit at the fan. Thanks to you and Stephen Harris, my family was able to come through well without power from Saturday until Wednesday. I live about 10 miles from Lumberton, North Carolina, which you may have seen on the news. We got somewhere around 15 inches of rain, complete devastation, and people are lost. My family of nine, me, my wife, and seven kids was able to help uh, we, we, where we could because compared to most people, we had a lot of stored for life events. 40 gallons of gas in cans plus 30 more in cars. Generator for the fridge, TV, lights, propane for the grill. Camp stove, inverter to run night lights from vehicles, plenty of food, water, etc. We are fortunate to live a few miles from the Lumber River, which is causing most of the disaster, but without power, clean water, and open stores, we would have been shit out of luck if not for our preps. So thanks, and let people know it could happen to you. My extended family, after watching my family stay put and survive, will most likely wake up and get prepared for life because they had nothing and went all the way to Charlotte to stay in hotels. We live 80 miles from the coast, so who knows if we could get worse uh, than, than most than during uh, Hurricane Matthew to be prepared. P.S. 15-gallon drums with fuel only work for me with a manual drum pump. I found on Amazon, not Stephen Harris Primer type bulb and hose. It could just be that it, uh, I just could not get that to work, but it was tested before we needed it. Well, I opted for a drum hand pump, which pumped well into my 5-gallon jug for transfers. And there's a link on Amazon for a rotary hand pump. I will put that link in the show notes for you guys today. And I will just say this for the Stephen Harris method using the bulb. So you take a fuel line for like an outboard motor and a bulb like for an outboard motor and you stick it in the tank and you pump it and then it flows. You have to have the, the drum on something elevated above the can because it's basically a siphon. So if you were planning to do that, you would need to have like some sort of elevated place that your drums are sitting on so your cans can be lower than them to get that siphon action to work. The main reason I use the bulb uh, fuel line method that Steve came up with is putting five gallons into my truck. Instead of standing there with a jerry can or a crappy gas can waiting for that the fuel to go in, I throw the can up on top of the toolbox, stick one end of the tubing in, the other end of the truck, pump, 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 once the siphon starts, walk away. You come back to an empty can. Or if there's a little bit left in it, you throw the uh, the nozzle on it, and you just end it up and dump that last little bit in. 
So that's kind of where that is. But anyway, I just think it's great to hear from people that say, hey, I did this stuff, it worked. We were comfortable, we were okay. Everybody else was, you know, kind of shit out of luck. And we were good, and my family observed this, and now they're getting prepared too. Because the stuff we talk about here isn't crazy stuff, folks. It just dominated the, the, the media for how long here with Hurricane Matthew. I promised you a lot of variety today, so let's continue on that. Today I have an article here that was sent to me by, who was it, Derek in PA. He says, saw this article coming up on my feed and thought you would appreciate it. Another great use for blockchain technology is a stock exchange. And this former NASDAQ CEO uh, is trying to make it happen. And this is on TechCrunch, and it is titled, Estonia's Thunderbeam is building a blockchain-based stock exchange for startups. Headed up by Khalidi, I can't say his name, who was previously CEO of the Nasdaq Talian Stock Exchange, Estonia's Thunderbeam is on a mission to build what she calls funding and trading engine for growth companies. Providing tools to research, fund, and trade in private companies, the bigger vision is to build something akin to a stock exchange for startups based in block blockchain technology. To make that vision a reality, Thunderbeam has raised $2.6 million in further funding. Leaning, uh, leading the round is Drapper Associates, Thomas Reuters, and IQ Capital with participation from an array of Thunderbeam backers such as 3TS Capital Partners. Notable other investors include Skype, co-founder John Talian and David Braben and CEO founder of Frontier Developments. Quote, there's too much complexity in the pre-IPO private market. Companies used to go to exchanges for growth financing, but looking at the startup future trendings, like Uber's ratings, raising $3.5 billion in just one round, plus the cost structure of getting listed and being listed, it does not make sense anymore, relationship tells me. Today's growth companies look to stock markets only as a serious option for exits. On top, early stage and growth funding has grown to unimagined heights, but it is one of the most liquid asset classes. Once you're in, you hardly get out. This, of course, is where Funderbeam comes in. The platform is part research tool. Part of the problem start startups set out to solve when launched in 2013. And part investment platform, providing a way for startups to raise funding and for investors to invest in burgeoning and potentially high-growth companies. Um, I'm going to let you read the rest of the article if you want to, but basically what the concept is here is let's create an off-exchange exchange where companies can come and present their value without the government getting involved. And we'll do it under this e-citizen branch umbrella of Estonia. And since most of these new startups, even if they have a physical presence, you can locate a corporation anywhere in the world, can locate their headquarters in Estonia, and then, therefore, not be subject to all of the regulations from the Department of Making You Sad, the federal government. And then I could come out with an idea and say, this is a company I want to build. This is our team. This is our plan. This is our setup. This is how much we need in funding. And you could invest in it. And then the government can't do anything. Because it would probably not even be in dollars. It would probably not even be in Bitcoin. It would probably be in a blockchain currency that is unique to the exchange, that would be tradable for Bitcoin, which could then be exchanged to dollars. So at that point, it's it's kind of... Now, I'll guarantee you our federal government doesn't like this. And I guarantee you our federal government would try to do something about it. But the question is, could they really? Because this is moving toward that whole virtual nation thing that I talk about all the time. It exists in a world outside of dollars. It exists in a world not much different than gaming, 
right? I mean, you can buy game credits and you can trade game credits. And if they happen to be worth money, they happen to be worth money. What's going to be, have to be careful is really the solicitation, the language. So I think they've set this up. There's nothing the federal government can do about it there or any the Canada's federal government, UK's federal government. What they can do is they can come down on you if you are a company seeking funding for the language you use in the solicitation of funds. But if it's done inside the exchange where you have to go inside the exchange to see it, then it starts to get a lot different now, doesn't it? Because it's not public solicitations. It's private. You know, one way to protect this is you say, anybody that wants to see what's available has to become a member of the exchange. And the fee to become a member of the exchange is 200 bucks or 500 bucks or 500 space tokens, which amounts to one half of a Bitcoin or whatever. And then when you buy your way in, you're like in this club now. Now, the problem is, let's say somebody like me. I have this incredible social capital, right, that I could reach out to. And if I start saying, well, we're building Jackco Enterprises inside of Estonia's Funder Beam, and on the outside, they could say, well, you're publicly soliciting. But if I just say, Funder Beam's great, and I work there, come join me. Well, I'm not solicitating you for any particular thing. And it would get really gray around those edges. So they're going to have to come up with a way to allow people to to promote themselves, a la Kickstarter, and protect them from the government. Because this is what the government says. Jack, the people you know that want to back one of your ventures, they're too stupid. They're too stupid to know if it's okay to do or not. We determine who's allowed to back what. Now, if they're your personal friends... That's different. But if you just go out on the air and say, I want to do Perma Ethos 2.0, and uh, this is what it takes to be part of it, well, that's, that's, that's public solicitation of investment, and you're not a public company, you're not doing an IPO, so therefore you can't do that. Yeah. They're looking for a way around that. And uh, there's a lot of people doing this right now, trying to find different ways to do this. They're going to crack it, and here's what's going to happen. If you've noticed something in the history segments... These big inventions, you know, Thomas Edison's light bulb and Alexander Graham Bell's telephone that transformed the whole world, they come in blocks. They all happen about the same time. They'll build off one another. It always has been the case. It will be the case here. It will be who's going to do it, and you're not sure, and there'll be 20 people effectively doing it, but it'll seem like a day later. It might take a couple of years from now. But when it happens, it's going to seem like it all just happened at once. Mark my words, it's coming, folks, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing that people are actually able to say, here's the value I'm offering, do you want to be part of it? And other people could say, yes, I do. Yes, I do, or no, I don't. Um, the government says they're protecting you, but what they're protecting you from is their own system, where they've created a system where people expect that if you just buy an investment, it's safe. What we need is, is the ability for people to be told, listen, you could lose your ass here. You have to look at the case being made. You have to look at the track record of the people involved. You have to understand the investment. And if you invest in it and you don't understand it, you lose, tough. But no one will ever say that as a legislator because they want votes, and that's not how you get votes. You don't get votes by treating people like adults. You get votes by treating people like children. See? So we need a way for the real adults of the world, all of us, 
to just say, you guys can be childish and do childish things and worry about controlling each other and expect everything to be guaranteed and you can be wrapped in bubble wrap and have your safe spaces and your trigger warnings. But the adults, we're going to go over here to Galt's Gulch. And instead of just going away, we're going to go do shit. And if you don't like it, don't look at it. You're not a member of the club. You're not allowed in. We need our own big-ass club. And virtual nations are one way to start building our own big-ass clubs. Um, let's do one more and close up. I think this is a good entryway back um, in, into uh, re, you know, producing the shows uh, live again. Anyway, this one comes from Sean, and it's, a, it's an encouraging story, and it kind of ties in with what I just said about us solving our own problems and going off and doing our own thing. That is the solution. It says, uh, on TSP Rewind, Jack, I love hearing these old shows. You were a bad mother back then, not that you're not now. I just missed the vinegar in your piss and the urgency in your voice. Well, hopefully you got some of that today. Anyway, um, I started listening to you on my birthday, October 9, back in 2011. The second show I listened to was 761, and that was the one that hooked me. I'll spare you the details, but it changed the trajectory of my life. I'm now experiencing my own life crisis. My wife, a doctor of veterinary medicine, decided to quit one of her two practices due to a conflict with the owner. This has cut our income by about a quarter. It is because of your teachings that I told her to quit that job and tell her boss there to go F himself. And he didn't say F, okay? Why? Because we're making about eight times the money we did when we met and we live about twice as good as we did then. As a rancher and a vet, our idea of paradise is a small house and a big barn. We only have a small barn because that's all we need. Thank you for capturing my attention and setting the course for sustainable lifestyle for our freedom. Thanks, Sean. Well, Sean, you're welcome, and thanks for sharing your way toward success in your life, being able to call your own shots, you know. My son, I wish, was a better student of his father's teaching. He's doing the best that he can, but he hasn't really, until the last couple of months, really tried to do something more for himself and his family and get out of the job that he has as a bartender. He just has wanted a better job, but not really tried to get one or try to figure out how to structure his life differently or whatever. And uh, he got kind of an eye-opener. He's he's really killing himself now. He really is. i got to be fair. Like He's working two jobs now. And uh, he he worked uh, a day where he got up at four in the morning, drove to Houston and back in the same day, and serviced a few accounts, and uh, I think he got home at 10.30 at night, four o'clock in the morning to 10.30 at night. And I said, welcome to the real world, kid. That's how it is. I did a, a lot more than once a week, and I did a lot more than here and there when I was your age and younger, and that's what it takes when you're starting out. It's paying your dues. But... uh He ended up not feeling real well after this, and he tried to get somebody to cover his shift at his bartending job, which he was unable to do, so he shows up for work, and like three people are like, what are you even doing here? I was said I would take it. So people were willing to cover his shift. They lied to him. And uh, so he, he said, you know, I really don't feel well. I'd kind of like to, you know, not work tonight. And he was basically threatened with either being written up Or you can work your full shift, or you can work a, a shorter shift and take a job as a server for the night. So he says he'll take the job for the server of the night. Uh, people ask him what happened. He tells them. So one of the little narc kids that works there runs and tells the manager, he's saying bad things about you. So she calls him in and bitches him out and balls him out. He's been working there 10 years. 10 years. And she's treating him like shit. And I'm like, good. He's like, what? I'm like, good. 
because you need a lesson in reality. You need to be in a position to tell her to F herself, and you're not. And he said, I would have quit. If it wasn't for having to provide for my family right now, after 10 years being treated like that for one minute, I would have told her to shove it up her ass and walked out the door, but I can't. Okay. I want for all of you what I want for my son. I want when that moment comes for you to be able to tell them to F themselves. Because you shouldn't be abused by people. You shouldn't be taken for granted by people. You shouldn't be underpaid. But if you want all those shouldn'ts to not happen, then you have to take responsibility in your life. You have to structure your life, and you have to structure your advancement and your skills and development. And if you won't do those things, nobody will do them for you. And then you're subject to the whims of the world around you. You're either in control or others control you. It's up to you. And many of you have come to the realization, I'm not in control. And you don't like it. You have two choices when you come to that realization. Since it feels bad, try to go back to sleep, fall back into the matrix, and blame other people for your problems. Or say, since I'm not in control, the only person that can seize control is me. I'm the captain of my ship, my own life, and I'm going to take control now. And the thing is, the decision's that simple. The process is not. It takes time. But once the decision's made, if it's genuine, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that you'll reach the point where Sean did, where you or your partner are told, well, you're going to do it my way or the highway. You're going to go, you know what, pound sand, because we don't do that shit here. We're going to go do things our own way, and you can be without my time and talent and passion. The choice is yours. Please make the right one. Your life is but a hyphen between two dates when you die. And when you are laid to rest or when you're faced with the, with the reality that you're almost done and you think about that dash, you won't think, gee, I wish I would have kissed more ass in my time. You'll think, gee, I wish I would have kicked more ass in my time. Anyway, with that, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by joining the Members Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You can sign up right there using PayPal online. Let me say something. There's been people having trouble signing up lately. If you try to sign up and it doesn't work for whatever reason, for every technical reason it doesn't go through for you, please email me and I will figure something out and I will help you become a member. All right? Don't just go away and say it doesn't work. It works for 9 out of 10 people. If you're the 1 out of 10 that's having these technical problems with PayPal right now, let me know. I will figure something out for you. And you can always pay by mail if you want to do that instead. Um, I will say that I'm, I'm going to be in discussions with a programmer, and I'm probably going to put it off until after the event, because it's so crazy around event time, about upgrading the MSB. The software we're running that on is nine years old now. And it really needs to be upgraded, and it's not a simple upgrade. It's not a simple update, even using the same software. Uh, there's a lot of migration issues and stuff like that, and I think it will solve some of these technical problems. Um, so we're going to be doing that by the year's end. It's going to be expensive, but I think it's worth it because you're the members. You need to be served uh, accordingly. But do consider becoming a member today. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts on so many things that will pay for your membership. That's that's my big sell piece on that. The other way you can support us is do your shopping at tspaz.com. tspaz.com is your portal for a survival podcast into the world of Amazon.com. That's right. You just Whenever you're going to buy something on Amazon, all you have to do is go to tspaz.com. And then there's a link there. You click that link, and you go to Amazon, and you buy your stuff. It doesn't matter what you buy. You support our show. You don't spend any extra money. 
You don't really spend any extra time. You just go to a different page before you do your Amazon search for your stuff. And then every day I bring you an item for review. Today's item for review is one I love. It is the Oster 22-quart roaster oven. This is an electric roaster oven. It looks like a giant crock pot, but it's lined with metal instead of ceramic. And you can put like a whole turkey in there, and I mean a big one. And you put a lid on it, and you can roast his ass at 325. And this is great for Thanksgiving. Why? Because your turkey's not in the oven when you want to put all that other stuff in the oven and all different temperatures and things like that. And you have to roast that turkey all day long. And then finally you can get around to baking the pie or you got to break it the day before. So it's great for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for the holidays. You get your oven back. It's great anytime you're cooking one really big thing and you want space in the oven to do other things. It's just awesome. Now what we use them for is cooking a lot of food for a lot of people. This is not a crock pot, even though it kind of looks like one. It goes up to 450 degrees. And when you turn it on, it doesn't, like, you know, you turn a crock pot on high and, like, oh, an hour later, it's pretty warm in there. No, this gets hot quick. This is an oven. You can make biscuits in it. You can make bread in it. Anything you would make in an oven, you can make in this thing. So what we do with it, for instance, is I smoke six pork shoulders for this coming event. Six whole pork shoulders. That's a lot of meat. Well, the, the, the Bradley smoker was fine. It, it, all, all of them fit in there. It was tight, but they fit. But then you got to do Texas cheat. Texas cheat, you wrap them up in foil really tight. You put them in the oven. You set the oven on like 225 and you let that run for like six hours, right? Okay. Great. Um, I can't fit six pork shoulders in my oven. I took two of these. I have three of them. I took two of them. I wrapped up my shoulders. I put them in there vertically. Each held three. Throw the lid on, set it to 225. Six hours later, porky deliciousness. Another thing we're going to do with the event, uh, we do on Saturday night, we do roasted carrots and potatoes with parsley. So you fill two of these up with carrots and potatoes, turn them on, boom, done. Tailgating, not going to work. Okay? Big football party, lots of people over the house, works just fine. The one limitation, this is an oven. This is not a crock pot. This is not a low-draw device. You're not going to fire up your Stephen Harris battery bank on the back of your truck and plug it in there and run it you know, for hours on end. It's not going to happen. This is a much higher draw electrical device. It's like turning your oven on. A little bit less than a full-size oven, but it's the same type of thing. So that's its limit. And so here's the other thing to be aware of. When we're running two or three of these, every one of them ends up having to be on a different circuit, different outlet, or it will start popping your fuse box. So we'll have like one sitting in the dining room plugged into that circuit, one sitting in the kitchen plugged into that circuit. So again, this is, I don't remember exactly what it draws, but if you could imagine something capable of attaining temperatures of 400 degrees in an oven-like environment, it's pretty high draw. But it's pretty high damn awesome too. Over 600 reviews on Amazon, uh, 4.5 stars overall, and, uh, it is like 60 bucks. Free shipping if you're a Prime member. I love it. That's why I have three of them. Not two, not one, three. Uh, another thing you might want to consider for them, it's a really great thing. They make these roaster liners. There's like a, it's like a piece of plastic, like, like a browning bag. You stretch over it like a, like a bag in a garbage can. And you put all your food in there and then you take your food out and then you just pull that thing out and throw it away. I put a link in the, sh- in the notes for this thing to Amazon where you can see them. I don't know why they're so stupid expensive on Amazon. You can buy them for a lot less at like grocery stores and stuff like that. So just so you know that those are available, it makes cleanup a snap and, 
Who doesn't want that around the holidays especially? So this year, instead of arguing about the ass clown election with your family, cook your turkey and your roast or the rest of the stuff in your oven, get everybody fed, put food in their mouth so their mouths are closed, You know, they get there, food's ready here, eat, shut your hole, drink some wine, watch football. We don't have time for any of that. Because we're not going to be changing anybody's political stripes at Thanksgiving. You can thank me for it after Thanksgiving dinner. Anyway, with that, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. As for the song of the day that I'm going to play for you today, well, I just came back from the magical Smoky Mountains. So what else could I play for you other than that great old song from the 1970s? Smoky Mountain Rain. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I thumb my way from L.A. back to Knoxville I found out those bright lights ain't where I belong From a phone booth in the rain I called to tell her I've had a change of dreams I'm coming home But tears filled my eyes When I found out she was gone Smoky mountain rain Keeps on That he was going as far as Gatlinburg I climbed up in the cab all wet and cold and lonely I wiped my eyes and told him about her I've got to find her, can you make these big wheels burn? Someone warm to hold I feel the rain running down my face I'll find her no matter what it takes